Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us today. Every week, Kim and I get together and discuss articles that we find on the internet with you related to the latest trends or education in wine. And we also like to discuss first what we Googled ourselves this week. So, Kim, what did you Google this week? So I Googled some common descriptive terms for a few textural elements in wine. So we had a recent class about the language of wine, and I wanted to look up all the different ways that wine tasting notes describe acidity, and then all different ways that wine tasting notes describe the tannins in a red wine. So that was kind of fun, because I actually found some really great resources that not only named the different ways that you can talk about tannins, but then gave a little definition for all of them. Sometimes we see words like chewy tannins or tight tannins or velvety or silky tannins. And it was, this was a really kind of a fun thing to look up because it, uh, I feel like having the more language that you have, the the better you can communicate your likes and dislikes with people. So that was, uh, that was what I Googled this week. And what about you? Well, Kim, I was looking up, you know, we always talk about the number of wineries in the United States. So mm-hmm. I actually found a stat of the bonded wineries in the United States right now. Now, oh. there's 13,513 wineries in the United States. Wow. And that's all over the place, correct? Every state has a bonded winery. Nice. Number one, of course, California now is up to 5,217 wineries. Massachusetts is sitting at 19 now oh. with 121. So I like to just get the updated. How many wineries are out so there? So there are 121 wineries in Massachusetts? 121 wow. bonded wineries. That's a whole lot more than I thought. 41 in Rhode Island, which was way mm. more than I thought. So, mm. And they're at number 41. How so. about Connecticut? Did you get that number? Connecticut was at 29. They had 72. Yeah, I know that they have a lot. There are a lot of wineries in So they're up there. New Hampshire is actually 32, and they have 59. Wow. I didn't look at Vermont for some reason, but Maine had 31, and they're 50, <laughs> right? Our first article we found we'd like to talk with you today is about hangovers and wine, Kim. And this was both in the Washington Post and Food 52. Right. We've done articles on this in the past, and I did have people approach me saying that that discussion we had was very informational. (laughs) So this is pretty much a follow-up on hangovers. Yeah, something that if you're a regular consumer of wine or other alcoholic beverages, you do have to deal with from time to time. And these both of these articles, I I felt, were, were very informative. One from the Washington Post about this guy who's been studying hangovers for about a decade and has just written a book that he thinks he has found the cure for the hangover and it involves amino acid capsules and drinking lots and lots of water. And then another informative article from Food 52 that says how you can drink intelligently and try not to get a hangover. Again, a lot of it involves hydration and then eating the right kinds of foods while you are consuming. So Kim, in the past we we had talked and this article, one of the articles said 23% of people 
are resistant to hangovers. Now, recently, I know... I wish I were one of those people. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up because recently we met and the first thing you said to me, oh, my head, I had too much wine last night, right? So how do you describe a hangover for you? I guess there's a sort of a spectrum, right? Sometimes it's just a headache and there are certain great varieties that tend to give me more of a headache than others. I don't know that I would necessarily consider that a hangover. It's when the queasy stomach hits that that I kind of consider it to be a hangover. You know, your brain's a little fuzzy and you're a little sick to your stomach and or you're really sick to your stomach. So all, all of those symptoms I would consider. I would consider to be from a hangover. And it's my fault for consuming a little too much wine. And again, not necessarily staying as hydrated as I should. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because they said the number one reason people feel this hangover is because of dehydration. Mm -hmm. So they mentioned before you drink wine, two things you should do. And you're always big on the first one of this is eating proteins and fats. Right. So protein is very important because it slows down the absorption of the alcohol into your system. So if you have food in your stomach and then you consume alcohol, the food in your stomach is going to slow down the absorption of the alcohol. So you're going to start digesting it in your stomach. So it's less of a burden for your liver to take care of and the alcohol gets into your bloodstream a little bit slower. So that is why food is important before you drink. If you eat after you drink, it doesn't have as much of an effect Um, and certainly has no effect on the alcohol that you've already consumed. Because as soon as you drink that, that alcohol starts getting absorbed into your system. And it it even starts in your mouth. And as it is going down your throat, it doesn't have to wait until it gets to your stomach before it starts being absorbed. So you're going to taste wine tonight, Kim. Mm -hmm. What's your go-to protein for our listeners? Is it something you say, oh, Mm. I'm going to have some wine tonight. I better do this or eat this. No, I don't have specific proteins in mind. Just some is good. And fat is also good. A lot of people talk about carbohydrates, but carbs tend to be a little bit better for after you've been drinking, you know, kind of to fill you up and to continue that digestive process. So first, before drink, proteins, fats, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. Always, always. Now let's talk about while you're drinking the wine, what should we do? Space out the drinks. Space out the drinks. That's the number one thing they said. And they said that, so keeping an eye on the amount of alcohol that you are consuming and also talking about the order with which you drink things. And I think most people have probably heard that, you know, you're not supposed to drink beer and then move on to liquor. And if you combine things that it's dangerous. And the reasoning that they gave in this article, which I hadn't really thought about before, was if you drink, say, a beer, which say 5% alcohol, and then you start to process that your body is adjusting to that. And then you throw hard liquor on top of that. It's like a whammy to your system. Whereas if you start with liquor, then you kind of kickstart your your system into starting to work on that alcohol. And then if you introduce something that's a little bit lower in alcohol, it doesn't have to quite work as hard. What do you think about, this was talking about mixing beer and, beer and wine and liquor. What do you think about mixing different styles of wine at one event? I do and, that all the time. So, so <laughs> I, that's my point. I'm trying to get crust so you feel it's not the same as mixing beer and wine if you're mixing rosé and then you're moving on to port Mm -hmm. or dessert wines you think that is a good thing as far as hangover or i don't have any information maybe because i'm used to it yeah i don't know i think with those higher alcohol sweet wines what can tend to get people into trouble is more the sugar than the alcohol because i i've certainly heard from people that they get worse hangovers when they've been drinking high alcohol and high sugar beverages so that's something that I would have people keep in mind to be careful if the drinks that you're drinking are are sweet as well as boozy. 
Yeah, and every time I, I mean, I hear hangover right away. I'm thinking headache. So yeah, head, you know, we're headache. always talking about how to prevent headaches when we're drinking wine. So the last thing they said while well, drinking, you should do again comes up again. Hydrate, mm-hmm. hydrate, hydrate, and we say that all the time right. as well. And then if even after all of that, you're still stuck with a hangover, sleep is important. Carbohydrates are good, and again, more water to uh, you know re- replenish your system and get all of those. They're called is it acid aldehydes. <laughs> Sounds good to yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I if, like the sleep. You you got I, me at sleep. <laughs> yeah, so sleep. But as your liver processes alcohol, what makes you feel sick is the byproduct of your liver doing all that work is your body produces these um, chemical compounds called acid aldehydes, which are really bad for your system. So when there's a lot of those in your system, that's when you are starting to feel sick. So uh, it does take some time for your body to process those out and uh, you will eventually be feeling better. So they mentioned the carbs after you drink right because mm-hmm. of the because of the sugar because of the sugar so yep uh, I, and gets your digestion going i always thought like they always say go to mcdonald's fast food <laughs> but you really want to go for ice cream or <laughs> that type of thing right bagels You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. We often talk about topics related to grape growing and winemaking as part of this show. And there was an interesting article in Wine Spectator that talks about uh, some of the chemicals that are used in vineyards to keep away some of the fungal issues that grape growers have to deal with on a pretty regular basis. And I thought that this was an interesting article for our listeners, Mark, because not only does it you know, give a little bit of information of the, the nitty gritty of how grapes are actually grown, but we talk an awful lot about pesticides and about organic farming and about those sorts of issues. So this kind of brought those two topics together, which I think is a good thing for consumers to know about. Yeah, I think it's good that our listeners hear these things that are used in wine. And I know the EU now is... They're trying to come up with some sort of compromise about using copper sulfide in the vineyards. When I first heard about it, Kim, and maybe the same for you, is when we were talking about Bordeaux and white Bordeaux, and they were using a lot of this copper spray to prevent disease in their vineyards. And then they changed, and they totally changed the profile of white Bordeaux. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time I was introduced to this. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that conversation. I remember first learning about the sort of really crazy, not crazy use, but when the, when the introduction of copper sulfate to vineyards in France had to happen in the mid-1800s, and this kind of goes back to all my wine history stuff, there were these new fungal diseases that were attacking grapevines in France in like the 1850s. And this product was developed to combat it. And they originally figured out how to use this stuff in Bordeaux. And so there can also sometimes be called Bordeaux solution, but it is a copper-based spray that looks a little blue apparently when you when you spray it on the vines but it's really good for getting rid of these mildew diseases especially this one particular one called downy mildew so when i was doing a lot of my studies of wine history and then also these diseases that attack vineyards this product came up over and over and over again and then when we start talking about organic growing even though this is a 
chemical that is sprayed on the vines, it is allowed in organic farming. And especially in areas that are pretty high in humidity or have a lot of rain, they have these problems. So it's, it's a conversation that a lot of not only organic farmers, but people who are just trying to think of the environment and is this bad for the environment? Is this good for the environment? Trying to find other ways of treating for these mildew problems in the vineyard. So a lot of the listeners probably think, well, they're organic. So how can they use this? Right. right. And, and they did give numbers like if you're an organic vineyard, you can use up to five pounds per acre. And then if it's a what they call a wet year where you're going to be open to more fungus, you can use up to, I think, 25 or 27. I mean, a lot, lot more if needed. Mm-hmm. And it raised the question, is it organic or can it be organic? Material. I didn't see anything says it can or it can't be, but then they did mention that it is a heavy metal. Right, it's a and metal. And it has risks to right. the workers. So, so like, risks to the workers, and then it stays in the soil. And that's one of the bigger concerns, is that this isn't something that just disappears or go away. Over time, it starts building up in the soil and depleting the nutrients in that soil and making it not so good for growing the crops. So it's not great for the environment, but I still think kind of at this point, people are like, well, we don't really have any options because if we don't treat, we're going to lose our crop. So that's one of those, I think, confusing things sometimes with organic growing that, yeah, there are, they're not even loopholes. They're more like, okay, well, we're still going to use this stuff because we just don't have an alternative right now. And it does look like there are new technologies being developed and alternatives that scientists are trying to come up with. So this is certainly something that I'm going to be keeping an eye on. And I like to, I like to hear how tech technology is improving not only the quality of the grapes, but improving the environment of the the vineyard as well. I'm glad you mentioned that about staying in the soil, Kim, because I was thinking if it does stay in the soil for so long, why are the grapes or the vines not adapting and allowing less use? Yeah. You would think over time, you're using it, you're using it, the vine is adapting, becoming more immune to the... Maybe it's not absorbed by the plant the, in a usable way to keep away the mildew because it's it's not like they're injecting it into the soil. They're literally spraying it on the leaves so that the mildew doesn't grow on the leaves. So I think once it's off of the leaves and into the soil, the plant doesn't take it up into itself to use it against that mildew. It has to be like physically on the, the yeah. leaves. The, the surface of the, the leaves itself. The fungus is affecting the fruit, not the vine, correct? It doesn't... The, it's the, the fruit and the leaves, I believe. Not the trunk or... Not, the, no, yeah, no, so. and not the roots. Yeah. Yeah, but those top parts of the plant. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. If you'd like to get past episodes of our show, please find us on iTunes. Next, we want to talk about an article that was in the world of fine wine, and right away, when you hear this, it's kind of a geek alert, right, Kim? So <laughs> geek alert. It's a very in-depth article, but we'd like to explain grape ripeness. And, so, Kim, And what that means to the yeah, flavor in your glass. What does it all mean? And this was a very, Kim and I were discussing, a very, very lengthy, detailed article, mm-hmm. pretty much about the science of how a grape develops. Right. And how it ripens and how flavors change. I had a conversation with one of my students last week about just this very topic where we were talking about climate and climate change and how grape 
grapes ripen in different environments. So this was a very timely piece to be reading. So we're talking about obviously fruit because wine is made from grapes. And as the fruit ripens, different changes take place within the fruit. So it is not just at the beginning of the fruit, it doesn't have as much sugar. And then when you pick it, it has a certain level of sugar. Beyond the level of sugar that is in that final grape that you pick and make into wine, there's something called physiological ripeness or phenolic ripeness, which means that not only is it sweet, but that all of the flavors in the fruit have matured. And, and this is really important for the plant itself, that its seeds have ripened to the point that if, say, a bird were to eat it and then disperse those seeds, then a new plant could grow. And I really loved that part of this article, sort of explaining not only the what, but also explaining the why. Like, why is this important that the fruit reaches this level of ripeness. Not only is it delicious to people and delicious to birds, the reason it's delicious to birds is because the plant itself is using those birds to spread its seeds. And and I always like reading those kinds of things. Wow. The bird. I, you know, the birds. I, I think a lot of those birds are over my car most of the time, <laughs> too. So that physiological ripeness is a term you probably commonly hear in the wine world. And you mentioned, Kim, later picking of the grapes develops more sugar in the grapes, but then there are times when earlier picking of the grapes leads to more acid. And that's something that's done in like the Champagne region where they want a more acidic wine. So they pick it earlier. So there's not as much sugar. Right. So it does change that flavor profile. So not only is there not as much sugar, but like you just said, you know, there's more acid in there. So it leads to not only a lower alcohol wine because there's less sugar to ferment, but you're left with more of a tart style of wine, whether it's a refreshing sort of tartness like in Sauvignon Blanc or maybe a a less pleasant sort of tartness if it indeed is a a vintage that maybe didn't get a lot of sunshine or didn't get a lot of heat. And sometimes grape growers pick early because that's the style that they're trying to make. And other times it's just, you know, this is what mother nature has dealt to you and you just kind of have to work with it. And Kim, we, we talked about sugar content and a very common term used for sugar content is bricks, B-R-I-X. And we talked in the past about text sheets and how you can find out information about your, your wine. If you go and look at the text sheets, most of the time they tell you the sugar level when the grapes were harvested. So define bricks, Kim, to so to you. How would you in a class? This, I mean, people usually don't ask. Yeah, I would describe you it, see as it a lot the, on the text sheets. Yeah, as the amount of sugar that is in that fruit that can be then directly fermented into alcohol. And there's a an equation that a certain number, a certain level of bricks will translate into a certain amount of alcohol. I think it's like twenty six degrees degrees of bricks will give you 13% of alcohol. I forget exactly what the what the right number is. But the, the rule of thumb is the higher the sugar content in the grape, the higher the potential alcohol in the wine. And what I thought was very kind of at the heart of this issue is that it's not just about the bricks, that sugar content in the grape is one factor in determining the final style and final taste of the wine. But you have to take into account all of those other factors and indicators of ripeness. So it's not just the sugar, but it's also the flavor. And he was saying in this article that that is why we are kind of one of those things we're dealing with climate change is that you have some areas that get 
really hot for an extended period of time and the grapes technically ripen but much faster and reach those high levels of sugar, but the grapes themselves don't necessarily taste ripe. And I think that that is a, a, a little bit of a tough concept to kind of get across because there's this difference between there's a lot of sugar in here and hey, does it taste the way that we really want it to taste? One of the numbers, Kim, they mentioned was 90% of solids in the grape juice is sugar. Yeah, I know. 90%. 90%. That's the solids. Now, we know the liquid is There's water. water. So, right. But interesting, the, the 90% Yeah, and I solids. actually didn't even realize that, that it was that case either. Although, from the when I've tasted wine grapes, they are a whole lot sweeter than table grapes. Like, it's a totally different feel in your mouth when you're eating a grape that is meant to be made into wine versus if you're eating a, a grape that you buy in the grocery store that's meant to be consumed as fruit. So it's, yeah. It's kind of a shock to your palate, It is. Right? It's totally different because not only is it, yeah, I mean, <laughs> not only in. is it super sweet, but it's it also has that acid too. And and the tannins in the skin are usually a little like, wow, as well. So it's, um yeah. It's, it's interesting <laughs> to see what how people have manipulated wine grapes over the centuries so that they um, come out making exactly what we want them to make in terms of wine. So let's, Kim, talk about what they mentioned, advantages and disadvantages of picking later, picking the grapes later. Right. And the advantages, they say the wines taste better younger, which is what the American consumer wants. Right. So there's this big debate between a more international style of of wine, where it almost doesn't matter where you're making the wine, whether it is someplace in Europe or someplace in North America, South America, that the style of the wine kind of comes out the same because you have these higher sugar levels, you have this all this phenolic ripeness in the fruit, and you get a lot of that, that fruitiness and jamminess, but you've kind of lost the individuality of the place. And then there's the kind of the other side of the equation where it's more more focused on the uniqueness of the place. And we, we call that term terroir, where like individual spots have a flavor and have a uniqueness. And the grape is the through which you translate the flavor of that place and, and turn it into wine. So there is this sort of, are you on team terroir or are you on team international style? And and people, you know, debate what's better. If you have a place that's been making wine for a thousand years and it makes this very unique characteristic, do you not want to make an international style there because you're losing that. I think it I think it uh, kind of depends on what you're looking for in your glass. I was trying to think when I saw the article talking about ripeness, how we talk about this when we're doing education. And we actually probably mention it a lot, but we don't say the word ripeness. In other words, Kim, we say cold climate wines, they're going to be lower in alcohol and warmer climates going to be higher in alcohol. And that all has to do with ripeness. But right. I personally never mention ripeness. I just say it based on the climate. Yeah, I'm not sure I use the word ripeness either. I'll talk about it in terms of flavor. If there is a big, powerful red wine in my glass, I will often describe it as jammy if I think it tastes like literally like jam and wines that have a lot of oak and a lot of kind of that buttery, creamy. It's the whole package that comes across to me as that style. But again, yeah, I don't know that I would necessarily use the word ripeness. Maybe we need to start. Yeah, I was thinking that. Well, you just mentioned the jammy is because it's a warmer climate. 
Yeah. It's developing more sugar and it leads to more alcohol, more of that jammy fruit. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, we don't use it a lot, yeah, Tim. But, maybe so, we, but we had to explain it to our listeners, right. right? And one thing that I really did like about this article was this move away from referring to wine styles as old world versus new world, which are terms that we have always traditionally used in wine. And the move to talking about them as terroir driven versus an international style, which maybe makes more sense because you can have these international styles of wine made in Europe and you can have these more unique special to place wines made in places like New Zealand, South Africa, all of these other places that we've usually termed new world. And I I think I might be getting on board with describing them that way instead. So it's good to learn and to read and to change your thinking and to uh, to grow that way. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about myself at my website, venitaswineworks.com, and more about Mark at franklinliquors.com. We mentioned at the beginning of this show that all 50 states make wine and grow grapes or fruit to make into wine. And a producer that I have always enjoyed uh, drinking their wines is one from New Mexico. Uh, it's a producer called Gruway. They make sparkling wines and pretty much only sparkling wines uh, in New Mexico. And we happened upon this great article in uh, 750 about some collaborations that the that the winery has with some of the Native American tribes in the area and how they are collaborating and and helping each other with some business projects. I thought this was a pretty cool article. Yeah, it's good that they're working with the locals to to figure out how they can get some production going. Actually, what had happened was Gruet was bought by Precept Brands, which is a pretty big company. They own house wine, but they're based out of Washington State. So now they have the option of sourcing a lot of Washington fruit for the traditional method uh, champagne they're making, but they want to stick to their roots in New Mexico. So they reached out to this tribe because they had land rights and water rights. Actually, I think it was the tribe reached out to them, which I thought was, that I thought made more sense. It's like, it's not, oh, here are a bunch of French people and they're going to the native population and being like, hey, you have water. We'd like some of your water. It seemed like it was the other way around because the the tribal population are the ones who are in control of the water rights for all these areas. And they were looking for ways to diversify because it sounded like they have a whole bunch of interests which are very environmentally conscious and are good f- for themselves and for the environment. And they reached out to them and were like, hey, we're looking for more agricultural opportunities to get involved in. We've got water. You need water. Let's work out some sort of deal. So it sounds like it's a it's a pretty good situation for everybody. So the tribe was the Pueblo, Pueblo yep, tribe. Pueblo of Santa Ana. And they have about 73,000 acres that they're planting vines in and they're also harvesting and doing the labor to, to hand harvest. Mm-hmm. So and you mentioned the Gruay people were having a little issue with water and they got together and now they have the water rights they're actually letting them use the water. So really great story. And one of the other things, Kim, we talk about history a lot. They mentioned in this article that since 1629, New Mexico has been producing wine. Yep, which is even longer than in California. When we talk about our wine economy in America and our wine history in America, it's it's really two different, two different stories. You know, we think about English colonists and coming over from England and trying to plant vineyards on the East Coast and it never really worked. And 
and it was story after story of failure. And then when you think about the West Coast has been mostly successful, but it wasn't those English colonists that established wineries and vineyards on the West Coast. It was the Spanish missions coming up through South Central America and up through Mexico that established those vineyards in in New Mexico, in Southern California, in Texas, and in northern parts of Mexico. So it's a totally different story that I don't think a lot of people know about, but is pretty fascinating. So yeah, so grapes have been grown in those areas of the Southern United States for, um, for hundreds and hundreds of years. I wish someone would write a book about the impact monks had on the wine world, right? Every region we go in, the <laughs> Just monks... In general. General, not yeah, like just in monks general, in France world, or monks in, in... They saved so much of the of wine world, right, Kim? I mean, in France, if it wasn't for them, in Italy, if it wasn't for them, in Spain, if it wasn't for them. So I don't know anything about Italian monks. Well, they're Italian monks. Well, I'm sure there are. <laughs> I'm going to do some research. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We have been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. For past episodes, please visit us on iTunes at The Wonderful World of Wine and visit our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Wine, wine, wine.